Hey, everybody. J.D. Flynn here. We are going to talk about Santa Claus in this episode. And in the first act of this episode, we're going to talk about Santa Claus in a way that's okay for grownups, but that you might not want your kids to listen to. You know what I mean. So if you're in the car and you're listening with your kids, either listen later or fast forward, I don't know, probably about 10 minutes or maybe it's time to have a hard conversation. Either way, we just wanted to give you a spoiler alert. Thanks, guys. Okay, ready to go? Yes. Claus. Hey, Dad. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> so um, maybe before we get started, I could, do you want to talk about this conversation? Would that be helpful to you? Sure. Okay, so we'll just have a phone conversation. If, if it works to sort of run it all in one take, then we might run it all in one take. But otherwise, we'll sort of edit it and script it. If you want to say something differently or yeah. whatever, that's fine, too. We'll what? do it For like sure. as a segment. Yeah. So um, you just act like you're having a phone conversation with me, which is what we're doing. Now, who's ta- who are you talking to? You. I'm, talking to. I'm interviewing my dad about playing Santa. Okay, so you're not interviewing Santa. No, I'm not interviewing Santa because Santa isn't isn't real. But but um, he may jump in every now and then. Yes, you can jump in with Santa as much as you as much as you want. All right. Okay. Okay. You've reached the CNA newsroom. CNA newsroom. CNA newsroom. CNA newsroom. Welcome to CNA newsroom. North Pole. <laughs> hey, Dad. How you doing? Uh, it's JD. Oh, hey, JD. <laughs> did you did you know it was going to be me, or did you think it was a call for Santa? <laughs> well, you know, this time of year it gets a little. You know, you gotta watch. You gotta watch when the names come up. It's so good that your names come on the phones now. You know. <laughs> Do you get a lot of calls for Santa? Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's busy time of year. Busy time of year. For as long as I can remember, my dad has played Santa Claus around Christmas time. It's just a part of our Christmas. My dad plays Santa. And I've always remembered him doing it, but I didn't know how he got started. So I called him up to ask him why. Well, let me tell you. So uh, my wife, Linda, uh, was a director of the the local uh, preschool at the YMCA. Linda's my mom. And it was around like, I don't know, like November or something. And, you know, Christmas was coming and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a man of, uh, you know, some girth. And I said to her one time, you know, it's kind of funny, honey. You think a guy like my size would always ask to be Santa Claus. And, you know, it's never happened. I've always been surprised. Like, I think I'd make a pretty good Santa. And we laughed about it. And like two weeks before they were going to have Santa at her, her school, the guy who did it broke his arm. So she called me up one day and said, hey, guess what? Your dreams have come true, so ho, 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 been Santa ever since. You've been, and you have been Santa ever since, but what was it like that first time? I mean, how did you know how to – you put on the suit and then how did, you inhabited another character. How did you, how did you do it? That's a, it's Christmas magic, J.D. <laughs> you know, you put on the costume and you, you do your eyebrows and all that other stuff, and as soon as the kids see you and the kids, like, they just explode with excitement. Like you just like fall right into it. And uh, it's really a, a fun thing to do, a very beautiful thing to do. I really enjoy it. That first year, my dad had a borrowed suit. It was like kind of corduroy. It was kind of 
anything cheap looking, you know. But after Christmas, when all the sales went on, and I got bought the best one, man. I think it was, this was like a thousand years ago. I think I spent like almost three hundred bucks on it, so Whoa. pretty expensive outfit. Yeah, wow. so it was a pretty expensive outfit, but but I went for it because because it was so wonderful, and. Uh, and immediately, you know, they they asked me if I'd be do the do the Santa again next year, and then friends of mine asked me to not go by their house. And the eyebrows thing, my dad said he used like a a white eyebrow pencil. Well, he used to. He he doesn't anymore. He says it's not worth the trouble. And your eyebrows are pretty great these days, so that helps. Uh, well, that that uh, is a nice way to say you're getting old, Dad. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> But yes, I am, I am saving money on makeup. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Soon after that first appearance at the YMCA, my dad branched out. He started doing Santa a lot. And he even started taking requests from friends to show up and surprise their kids at home. Yeah, you have to plot those things out, you know. You have to you know, find out exactly what time, what's going to be where. And you get you usually have to, like, sit in the car for, like, 10 minutes until you get the signal, <laughs> you know, where you can kind of go by and, you know, yeah. accidentally, like, bump into the mailbox or something like that to make the noise. The kids go scurrying. I actually used to always enjoy whenever I would go to people's houses. And, of course, I would dress up like Santa and drive, you know, wave at people. Now, yeah. several times when I was doing that, like I would see like you know parents with their little kids and the kids jumping up and down, and I'd pull the car over and go talk to the kids. Just <laughs> it was, and you know, I guess the parents had to explain why Santa drove like an '84 Toyota Tercel. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I would explain that because you know wherever I was. The snow was about four blocks over that way, uh-huh. and that's where the reindeer were. Oh. And so, but I had to get to where I was going, so I had to borrow this car. But those reindeer were always like nearby, about four blocks away. My dad said that one of his favorite Santa events for a long time was this breakfast with Santa hosted by our family parish back in New Jersey. It was a fundraising thing, but it was a lot of fun. And um, the families would come, and the kids would get all dressed up, and they would go to the... Uh, the nine o'clock mass. And after that, they had breakfast with Santa. But one kind of fun thing I did, I think my second year was at the end of the mass when uh, after the uh, course, after the blessing had occurred, the song was singing, I would come in from the side, dress as Santa and go over to the manger and just kneel in front of it and pray for what I was about to do. And you would see the kids just explode with excitement, you know, and then I would uh, run over to the parish center and then we'd start our breakfast with Santa lineup. A lot of fun. Every time a child would sit on my lap or I'd be with these children while they're while they're talking to me and we're talking and having a fun time, I would always be praying for them, that they would understand the, the joy and the, and, the, and the beauty and the celebration of Christmas and that Christ would come alive in them and their family. Kids would ask my dad, how's Mrs. Claus doing? What size boot do you wear? Did you get my letter? Did you like the cookies I left you last year? Is that nice Mr. Ed there with you today? He always left me some mince pie and sherry for me. Nah, the fine British lad. <laughs> oh, Ed. oh, my dad, everybody is a big fan of CNA Editor's Desk, so he's talking about DC Editor Ed Condon. <laughs> but, you know, Dad, I was think, I kind of thinking it was interesting that you did this because I we didn't grow up, like, believing in Santa. I can't remember ever believing in Santa. That wasn't really the way that our family did it. Right, What, what was right. your, like, for you and Mom, what was your approach to sort of, like, Christmas and Santa and that kind of stuff for us. 
Well, certainly we would explain, you know, what's, you know, what, what the season's about. And certainly when you're young, we would talk about Santa because, you know, Santa was everywhere and exciting and he was in school with you and, and then all the other kids would be talking. But, you know, we would also emphasize the fact that, you know, who Santa was like, you know, my, my story, how I'm St. Nicholas from, you know, from 242 AD and how the, the, it is the idea of St. Nicholas and the idea of joy and giving that is, is part of the Christmas season, but really it's all, you know, the, the present is Jesus. Certainly we can have joy and celebration and Santa and so much fun. You know, we have to keep in mind too that it all points to Christ. Uh, I got so many parents thanking me when I would do the uh, praying at the manger in the church before breakfast with Santa. So many parents uh, thanked me for doing that because that would help them tie Santa and Christmas and Jesus all together. My dad isn't actually the first Flynn to don a Santa suit. I have this picture with his dad, the, the only picture I have with his dad, my grandpa dressed up as Santa. That was the first time I ever saw my, my dad do Santa. And uh, that was towards the end of his life too. And uh, that that memory is uh, etched etched deep on my heart. Uh, that picture is, uh, is something I, I, I is precious to me. Uh, yeah, that was uh, I, and that was totally unexpected. Because you you didn't have a great relationship with your dad, so when you saw that, and then when you put on a Santa suit, is that something you think about? Yeah, great. Now I'm getting squishy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. Well, that's very true because um, it does. I do think about it uh, when I when I when I put on the Santa suit, and uh, and that was a great blessing for me at a time that I, I needed that blessing of, of that exact event. So, yep, Saint Nicholas works in mysterious ways. Let me ask you this: I don't want you to say I don't want you to say this just because I'm your son, but do you think that I have what it takes to follow in in, a, in our family Christmas business? It would be my joy for you to get your own Santa costume and be Santa Claus. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and blessed Advent. This is Christine Rousseau, and I'm one of CNA's DC correspondents. Unlike my boss, Ed Condon, I like many festive things. Ice peppermint mochas, cats wearing Santa hats, lighthouses decked out in holly, ugly Christmas sweaters that actually aren't ugly and are pretty cute binging true crime shows that are set during the holidays, and of course, trolling my colleagues. If you enjoy listening to CNA Newsroom and CNA Editor's Desk, you can subscribe to both shows and get them delivered straight to your phone as soon as they're posted. Just search on your favorite podcast app for CNA Newsroom, tap the subscribe button, and then do the same for CNA Editor's Desk. Both shows are available on Apple Podcast, Overcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more. And now, back to the episode. When J.D.'s dad puts on a Santa suit and visits children, he's carrying on a tradition that actually started in the Middle Ages. Beginning in the 13th century, children at cathedral schools in Europe would elect one of their classmates as bishop on December 6th, which is of course St. Nicholas Day. The child bishop would preside over vespers and sometimes even deliver a homily. And during the Enlightenment, this custom was prohibited. <laughs> But from then on, we had the tradition that somebody dressed as St. Nicholas and visited uh, the homes of families. This is Father Marco Benini. He teaches liturgical studies at the Catholic University of America in Washington. Father Marco is originally from Germany, 
and for a time he was pastor of a parish in Germany dedicated to St. Nicholas. So St. Nicholas's feast day was a big deal at his parish. Every year, Father Marco would host a special celebration for the children at his parish. He'd talk with the children about the life of St. Nicholas. And after, a parishioner dressed as St. Nicholas the white alt, uh, mitre and the staff of a bishop would come out, recite a poem, and distribute small gifts to each child. And so you could see the whole church full of children with radiant eyes awaiting St. Nicholas and singing to St. Nicholas. So who was this bishop who has captured the imagination of so many across the world and for so many centuries? So what we know historically is not so much. Yeah, the information's really thin. Stephen Hildebrand is chair of the theology department at Franciscan University of Steubenville in Ohio. Most of the stories that come about St. Nicholas are actually later. And um, historically speaking, it's not the best evidence. We know that he participated in the Council of Nicaea in 325. The other things that we know are more legends, but of course legends also have a bit of truth in it. Nicholas was born in the 3rd century in modern-day Turkey. He grew up at a time when Christians were persecuted by the Roman Empire. Persecution in the early church, sometimes you get the impression that, that the Christians were just continuously hammered. That wasn't so. The persecutions were sporadic. Uh, sometimes they were very intense. But they were sporadic um, and varied in intensity from time to place. But there were three times when the emperor instituted a general empire-wide persecution. Uh, so twice in the third century, which would have been before St. Nicholas was born. But then the one that, um, that he really suffered would have been under Diocletian. Beginning around the year 303. It was the, the empire's last intense effort to stamp out Christianity once and for all. Romans would round up Christians and order them to worship pagan gods. Christians who refused were arrested. Many were tortured, many were martyred. Sometimes, um, and I think this is the case in the time of Diocletian, they would cut the tendons behind one knee and then poke out one of their eyes and then send them to work in the mines uh, until they worked to death. But I think several bishops at Nicaea had suffered that persecution. I've often imagined in my, in my mind, when I think of the Council of Nicaea, I think of these old, some of these old bishops, uh, perhaps among them St. Nicholas, who had suffered this brutal persecution. And then here at the council, wounded and limping and having only one eye standing up for the faith against uh, the heretic Arius. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Despite persecution, Nicholas grew in his faith. He was ordained a priest. And here's where the legends about St. Nicholas begin. The bishop of Nicholas's hometown of Myra died, and other bishops in the region were having a hard time selecting his successor. Well, legend has it that one of the bishops heard a voice in the night telling him to go to a nearby church early the next day. And the first person to enter the church to pray would be the next bishop of Myra. And who was the first person to enter that church the following day? Nicholas, of course. He was ordained bishop of Myra. 
Then there's the legend about Nicholas appearing to a group of sailors in the midst of a thunderstorm. Nicholas gave them life-saving advice on how to navigate the storm. Soon after, they arrived at the harbor of Myra. They went to the nearest church to thank God, and they found Nicholas in the church praying. They recognized him immediately as the one who had appeared to them in the storm. Oh, and the legend that Nicholas dropped three bags of gold at a house in Myra to pay the dowries of the three women who lived there, ultimately saving them from prostitution. So, are these legends true? Stephen told me that question might be beside the point. There's a wonderful passage by St. John Henry Newman. He's talking about there's all kinds of traditions in the church that are of questionable origin. And uh, oftentimes, the... uh, kind of a cynically minded historian will be very dismissive of them and say, you know, those sorts of things didn't happen and sort of disparage the traditions altogether. But Newman takes a different approach. Of course, he acknowledges that uh, in a lot of cases, the historical evidence is not so great. But then he he makes this point. He says, um, there's something valuable about a lot of those traditions. He calls it the spontaneous produce of religious imagination under imperfect knowledge. He uses the example of uh, St. Ignatius. There was a tradition that St. Ignatius of Antioch, who died around the year 110, that he was one of the little kids that Jesus had accepted into his arms or embraced. And Newman makes this point using that example. He says, look, he says, maybe that, maybe that didn't happen just so. But that tradition tells us something true about St. Ignatius nonetheless. He says, uh, you know, if it didn't happen, it might as well have because that tells you something about Ignatius's intimacy with the Lord, his fondness for the Lord, and those sorts of things. Those stories about his acts of charity, maybe they're off in the details here and there, or something like that. But I think in the main, what they tell you about St. Nicholas is true. You have to make sure you don't miss the point by focusing on the imperfect nature of the evidence, you know. Nicholas was imprisoned under the persecution of Diocletian. That persecution came to an end in 311 with an edict of toleration issued by Diocletian's successor, Galerian. In 313, the emperor Constantine released the Edict of Milan. Which not only gave Christianity uh, toleration, but actually certain benefits and um, advantages uh, in the eyes of the state. By this point, Nicholas is, of course, a bishop. He's probably in his 70s, and his problems are far from over. Because within a couple of years, controversy breaks out within the church over the divinity of Christ. I guess he moved, in a sense, from one controversy to the next. Up until 313, he's dealing with persecution, of course, and problems that come from the outside, if you want. And then from 313 on, really the focus changes to more problems within the church. So he's going to be dealing with bishops who disagree with him over the meaning of Jesus' divinity. There were council after council after council. I don't know how many St. Nicholas would have gone to, but over the course of the fourth century, there were probably dozens of councils called to try to uh, heal this, this internal division in the church. The most well-known of these councils is the First Council of Nicaea in 325. The council brought together hundreds of bishops from across the Middle East, including Nicholas. The bishops needed to address the teachings of the Libyan priest Arius, who denied the divinity of Christ. 
Arius was often brought before the bishops. And here's where the line between fact and fiction blurs again. Legend has it that during one session of the Council of Nicaea, debate over the divinity of Christ became so heated that Nicholas punched Arius. So, you know, maybe he punched Arius, maybe he didn't. But uh, it seems to me what that story is getting at is valuable and true, namely that St. Nicholas was devoted to Christ, uh, and intensely so. Nicholas died in 343. He was immediately venerated in his hometown of Myra. Devotion to him spread to the West when Italian merchants stole his relics from Myra and brought them to the Italian city of Bari, where they can still be found today. In the end, we may not have very much hard evidence about the life of St. Nicholas, but Stephen and Father Marco said we can still learn a lot from even just the legends about him. I mean, there's so many bishops, you can think of St. Athanasius uh, among them. Uh, so many bishops are famous for standing up for the divinity of Christ, but um, I don't think any others uh, are alleged to have punched Arius. You know? <laughs> so, so there's something uh, intense and dramatic about his acts of charity and his love of Christ. He embodies the generosity and love of God and also of Christian joy. The children or whoever meets St. Nicholas becomes a happy person. And the faith, I am convinced, has to do with the joy of life. Christ brought joy to the world and we are called to be ministers of this joy. St. Nicholas shows in his person how to do it. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Oliveira. So all of you probably know that last Friday, December 6th, was the feast day of St. Nicholas. Maybe maybe you even got candy in your shoes or you were an ambassador for St. Nicholas and you put candy in someone else's shoes. But you might not know that a lot of people around the world observe a very different kind of day on December 5th, Krampusnacht. You might have heard of Krampus. He's basically like the scary demon Santa Claus type guy whose legend seems to have originated in the historically Catholic regions of Alpine Europe. But, and I can't stress this enough, Krampusnacht is not a date you'll find on the church's Roman calendar. Apparently, a lot of people around the world really like to celebrate the idea of Krampus. He's kind of like a mixture of Christmas and Halloween. Last Thursday, there was even a family-friendly festival in downtown Denver, close to our office, celebrating Krampus night. Did we send a reporter there to interview people? You bet we did. How long have you been a Krampus, if you don't mind my asking? Um, I've been doing it on and off with the Chris Kindle Market for probably five years, seven years. We found out there were so many permutations of Krampus. And it's like, well, let your imagination fly. Krampus can be one with hooves or with crazy feet. And could you just real quickly just describe your costume? Uh, we can obviously hear the bells. I have bells, and that's the scare kids. I have a chain, and I have a plain mask because... Uh, it's, it's also very terrifying, and I have lots of horns on my head. Yeah, I have to say, your face is very blank and expressionless. Right, right, and it's scary, because you can't tell. I'm smiling, but you can't tell. <laughs> my mother is Austrian, my father is German, so I'm first generation, so I'm still very attached to the uh, uh, old traditions. 
and uh, crumpusing is fun because you get to terrorize little children. <laughs> Father Christmas brings gifts on the 6th of December, so Krampusnacht is the 5th, which is tonight. They're actually his minions because they go and get the kids that have been bad. We either take them away and they become other Krampuses or we eat them. I'm all in favor of the eating, you know. You know, back in the old days when it was okay to actually, you know, hold kids accountable for misdeeds. Well, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Enjoy Krampusnacht. For whatever reason, the idea of a Christmas demon as a kind of sidekick to St. Nicholas has captured people's imaginations for quite a while. But what should Catholics think about all that? For our next segment, we have a surprise guest with a very personal connection to this legend. Here's our German colleague, Christoph Wimmer. When I was a child, every year we would get a very special visitor. He had pointy twisted horns poking out each side of his head, a thick woolly neck, arms and legs, and chains that would rattle as he walked. Every year during Advent, he would come and threaten to stick me into a burlap sack for being a naughty boy throughout the year and to take me with him. Mind you, he did so with a wink and the fact that my mum always giggled made the whole thing a lot less scary than it could have been. Luckily, some 40 years later, I'm still here to tell the tale. And these days, I ring the old codger up on the phone each year come December to arrange for him and a mate to come to my house, where they remind my own kids that behavior has consequences, but good behavior is rewarded with heavenly sweets. We call him Krampus. I grew up in a small village in Bavaria in the foothills of the Alps until I was eight years old. Every year in December, when the days are short and cold, and snow falls on the alpine meadows when the home is filled with the smell of speculatius, of shortbread and marzipan, and even the utterly lapsed, secularized natives like my own good two parents start thinking about Christmas and consider attending church for once, it is time for a visit by a very nice man, along with his sinister sidekick. Yes, you probably guessed it by now. The good guy is literally a saintly man, a bishop, by the name of Nicholas, or Santa Claus, if you will. And on St. Nick's feast day, the 6th of December, Nicholas and the Krampus roam the Alps and other historically Catholic parts of Central Europe, bringing frightful cheer to children everywhere. The legend of this spooky Christmas visitor has been around for centuries. Here in Europe, each area has their own weird and wonderfully different Krampus tradition. In our neck of the Bavarian woods, just an hour to the south of Munich, there are many special and famous customs, such as Catholic wood carvings and the Passion Play. You know, the one performed every 10 years for centuries now, to thank God for sparing us locals from the Black Death. Here in the village of Oberammergau, many young men dress up as Krampus. There are the most fearsome red-furred ones with heavy chains. Then there's the most common ones in sinister black fur and a few young nimble white-furred ones. 
All of them wear terrifying masks and sometimes cowbells, carry small whips and sticks and roam the streets on foot or on horse-drawn sleighs and toboggans. But the Krampus figure is not just popular folklore with parents and little children. Every year on the evening of the 5th of December, my own 16-year-old son, Maximilian, and a few of his mates go running with the Krampus, the Krampuslauf, which is an event that takes place in many towns and villages across my native Bavaria and Austria, but also in parts of Slovenia and Slovakia, Croatia and the Czech Republic, as well as the German-speaking part of Northern Italy. They all go out for a round of Krampus Tratzen in our village, which is Bavarian for teasing the Krampus, or getting teased by him, depending on whom you ask. Last year his mate Franz ended up being chased by five Krampus. They jumped off a sled in the middle of the road after he got a bit too close and let's just say that he felt that encounter for a day or two. But what does all of this, I hear you asking, have to do with Catholicism? Well historians have worked hard to trace the roots of these traditions. In other Germanic regions, somewhat less sinister fellows accompany St. Nicholas as well. There's Knecht Ruprecht and Hans Trapp in German in Arsis, to the smarte Piet of the Netherlands and many more. But by most accounts, the trail of evidence peters out after a few centuries. That's not stopped self-proclaimed historians in the 20th century, when Catholicism started falling massively out of favor, from speculating that this surely had nothing to do with Christianity, but must have earlier pagan roots after all. However, on the other hand, the Krampus is clearly related to the Perten, a figure that pops up around Epiphany in the New Year, and whose very name is reminiscent of Epiphanias. So it may all be very Christian after all, albeit with a particularly alpine flavor, and that may not be that surprising when you consider most of Bavaria became Catholic in the 8th century, thanks to fearless Irish and Scottish missionaries. In any case, for kids growing up in families practicing their faith in 2019, like Max and his sisters, the Krampus is just part of their local and inherently Catholic Bavarian identity, just like singing Silent Night and decorating a Christmas tree. Upon hearing that Krampus is now generating an interest in the United States, Max and his sisters thought that was really cool, Dad. After all, they reckon Krampus is a lot more impressive than anything Halloween has to offer. And being told to mind your manners never hurt anyone, surely. Especially if you're told by a sinister figure who is nonetheless clearly in the service of one of the most popular saints you could imagine. Evil is only serving good. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Anjan Christoph Wimmer. Christoph Wimmer is the editor-in-chief of our German-language news partner, CNA Deutsch. And actually, Christoph has just launched a new podcast to bring Catholic news and analysis to Germany. If you happen to speak German or you just want to listen to more of Christoph's awesome radio voice speaking in German, check out the CNA Deutsch podcast. We have included a link in our show notes for this episode. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's been great talking with you. I'll see you all real soon. Hey, CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency. 
a service of EWTN. I'm Santa Claus. <laughs> My son, J.D. Flynn, is your host and CNA Editors-in-Chief. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McCann. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, who is on the nice list. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas.